Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Steve Jones, Professor of Genetics at University College London, describes why he believes that creationism is wrong and evolution is right at a lecture organised by the Department of Chemistry as part of its Millennium Lecture Series. I'm glad, to, I'm glad to see that the University of Bath, with its radical background, is much less keen on the fire regulations than the University, than the University College of London. <laughs> um, however, we may well be struck by lightning, I warn you. Um, okay, well, the picture you see before you is a very familiar one, and I think we'd all agree, whatever our um, scientific or other views, that it's a very beautiful metaphor for the origin of human beings. Um, however, as we well know, the notion that it's just a metaphor is uh, alien to large numbers of people because very many people, perhaps even a majority of people in certain parts of the world, believe that this image of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is actually the literal truth of how uh, not just humankind but every other creature on earth actually emerged. And if you want to take the um, story absolutely literally and add up the dates of the prophets patriarchs in the Old Testament. You can work out, as Archbishop Usher famously did, that this took place, event took place, on October the 4th, 4004 BC, which was a Thursday at 10.30 in the morning. Um, so here's Adam and Eve. Um, and it's, you know, we, we all know about it. It's a, a very familiar and widespread creation image. But of course, it isn't the only one. There are, in fact, many different images of that kind. Here's one that may be a bit less familiar, which at one time, perhaps not now, but certainly at one time, historically, uh, was probably believed by as many people as believe the Adam and Eve story. This is a, a Chinese origin uh, legend showing the god Pan Gu. And at some time in the distant past, a cosmic egg floated in the void. It cracked. This god emerged. He grew for 18,000 years until he's, he banged his head against the sky, which was 30,000 miles high. He then died. His eyes became the sun and the moon. His tears became the rivers of the world. And the fleas and lice on his body became the ancestors of men and women, respectively. <laughs> now, that's perhaps a slightly less attractive, albeit uh, equally fascinating story about human origins. But one thing is very clear. Um, it might be true, but if that's true, Adam and Eve is wrong. Adam and Eve might be true, and if Adam and Eve is true, that one's wrong. And the problem with both of them, and with all the hundreds of other beliefs about human evolution, is that the vast majority of them are not supported by evidence. In fact, they don't need evidence. They demand only faith. I want to talk about another model, which you're, I'm sure you're all familiar with, of human evolution, which is different from any of the others, because certainly it's a model um, which is a matter of controversy. It's a much newer model. It led to uh, great disagreements uh, 150 years ago when it appeared. But crucially, it can be tested with evidence. And I hope I can persuade you that this model here, which is Charles Darwin's model of human origins, um, the origin of species, of model of evolution, is right. And all the other ones of creationist models, at least in their literal sense, of factual explanations of why, how we got here, are wrong which it might strike you as a rather daring thing to do in 55 minutes, but I will do my little best. Okay, well, we all know the uh, origin of species, 1859. Uh, Darwin didn't actually say very much about human evolution in that, apart from one mention on the last page where he says light will be cast upon man and his origins. But in a later book, The Descent of Man, he goes on to apply his argument to human evolution. And really, it uh, was very quickly 
accepted. People tend to imagine that in 1859, large parts of London were burned to the ground, the gutters ran with blood, um, you know, uh, vicars were being hanged from lampposts. But of course, this wasn't true at all. There was certainly a, a, mo a long moment of uh, discussion. Queen Victoria didn't like the idea at all. Uh, but the Church of England, and indeed, the clergymen of various kinds thought about it and realized that, in fact, with a little thought, it didn't necessarily impinge upon their belief system at all. And it was quickly accepted. And it's very surprising, I think, to all scientists um, that all of a sudden, these anti-rational beliefs, beliefs that don't need evidence, have come back. And the creationism is really making an enormous comeback worldwide. According to a, United States, uh, a poll in the United States in 2005, about 40% of the American population believe that God created humans within the past 10,000 years. That means about 150 Americans. As I say to my American publishers, I don't mind if those guys burn my books as long as they buy them first, <laughs> but unfortunately they don't show much sign of doing it. Uh, George Bush himself has said, on the issue of evolution, the verdict is still out on how God created the earth. Well, <laughs> George Bush and many other people, not just George Bush, many other educated people, deny the evidence <laughs> deny the evidence that humans and primates are close kin. I find that surprising in the American context, I have to say. Uh, because it's a, it's, a, it's a truism. It's obviously clear. It's clearly true that all of us have strong similarities to our close relatives, in this case chimpanzees, perhaps some of us slightly more than others. Um, that comes from a website called bushyourchimp.com, by the way. <laughs> And the slide can be used in all conceivable lectures on any subject. <laughs> um, but it's easy to mock at what we see as determined ignorance in the United States. But mockery is not enough. This, is, this, uh, this notion is spreading. You know, in, uh, in Britain and in Islamic countries, it's very strong. I've just come back from Turkey, where I was last weekend. And there, it's a major political issue. Creationism in Turkey is being used by radicals, not necessarily Islamic radicals, but radicals, in an attempt to... to to destroy the split which has really made modern Turkey, the split between church and state, or Islam and the state. Although they have an Islamic government, they've managed to keep um, the two separate. And what's happening in Turkey very strongly is a great um, explosion of belief in creationism almost as a political belief. And both in Turkey and in the United States, um, uh, the argument is that we're not by no means immune here in, in Britain either. You can see there's a high proportion of people who believe in some anti-evolutionary theory. Well, both in Turkey and in the United States, the argument of creationism is what the American creationists describe as the wedge strategy. It's not just some vague religious belief which people want to believe in. What they want to do is to insert creationism into the school curriculum. And the way they do that is to say that both creation, oh, in its various flavors, and evolution are faith positions. And as they're both faith positions without any evidence for them, then they should be, both be treated with equal weight. Well, I hope to persuade you that actually when it comes to evolution, um, we have an enormous amount of evidence um, all around us. Well, why... Has there been this enormous explosion in creationism? In some ways, I think, I have a certain sympathy with it. You may be surprised to learn. And the sympathy comes from the fact that actually the more that biology begins to sink into public consciousness, as it has, and that's a good thing, that education of any kind can sink into public consciousness, the more people begin to think about themselves, their own position, as people rather than animals. 
And that actually was what happened when the origin came out in 1859. There was immediate shock that what Darwin had done was to knock Homo sapiens off the pinnacle of uniqueness which he'd previously occupied and just make him another animal. Um, you can see that in this uh, cartoon from Punch, which came out in 1860. And here's the absolute, the worst of all horrors. Here we have a chimp in a dinner jacket giving orders to a human servant that somehow that human is ha having to bow to this animal because he's just another animal and the chimpanzee is almost a human being. I have to say I gave a, this lecture in, uh, in, in a school called Eton, you may have heard of, a couple of weeks ago, and I was strongly uh, impressed by the numbers of chimps in dinner jackets. You wouldn't, be, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe the way those guys dress, but still. So that's the problem. The problem is that evolution makes us less human, more like chimps, less unique. Now, it's easy to mock at that Victorian idea, but actually, in my view, and many others, it's come back in another guise today. Here's a woman many of you will recognize, Jane Goodall, who is a very famous and extremely able primatologist. She started the famous um, field survey of chimpanzees in Gombe Stream. And Jane Goodall, who's an excellent scientist, no question on it at all, um, is here showing her affection for one of her chimpanzee friends, which, as we'll agree, or as we'll see in a moment, may not be necessarily a good idea. But Jane Goodall is very consumed with the idea that chimpanzees and humans are very, very close indeed. And in fact, she agrees, in some senses, with that Victorian cartoon, because she says that actually chimpanzees are at least partly humans, and she's behind quite a powerful movement which wants to give chimpanzees, if not complete, at least partial human rights. And they have had some success. Now, the issue of animal experiments is a, a, another difficult issue I don't want to go into. But it's notable that in Europe it is now effectively impossible to carry out animal experiments on large primates because of the pressure of people like Jane Goodall who for, for, for very understandable reasons in some way feel that chimpanzees are human, humans are chimpanzees, indeed that we might need to change our Latin names so that we don't have just Homo sapiens but Homo pygmaeus, which is the, uh, uh, the specific name of the, of the chimpanzee um, uh, so Homo troglodytes, um, which is the specific name of the chimpanzee. So again, a notion that modern biology, evolution, makes us less human. And I'll return to that at the end. But what is this theory called evolution? Why do, we all, bi why do all biologists believe in it? And I can't think of one out of the thousands, the tens of thousands of biologists. Well, I can think of one, but he's a biochemist, so that doesn't count. Um, uh, worldwide, who, who don't believe in it. What is the evidence for evolution? Well, I often think that the theory of evolution is in some ways the grammar of biology. Before Darwin, there were plenty of people doing good biological research around and had been doing for hundreds of years. There were people finding new kinds of plants and animals, people breeding improved versions of cows and sheep, um, people digging up fossils, and a lot of valuable work was done, a lot of which, in fact, was uh, Darwin referred to. But none of them actually realized they were doing the same thing. There was not a science called biology. There were separate sciences that seemed to be totally disconnected from each other. What evolution does is to give all those sciences a structure so that suddenly everybody who's doing biology and whatever they're doing whether it's um, very traditional biology or computer-based gene sequencing, which is the stuff lots of people now do, they're actually doing Darwinian, they're studying evolution. And that was Darwin's great contribution to invent the science of biology. Well, Darwin des describes evolution in three very simple words. Descent with modification. Descent, the passage of information from generation to generation, and modification, the accumulation of errors. 
Um, we can rephrase it now in three even simpler words, genetics plus time. If you've got genetics, a system of inheritance, if that's imperfect, it's modified, and you've got plenty of time, you're going to have evolution. It's inevitable, it's simple. It's so simple it could almost be physics. <laughs> so that's what evolution is, genetics plus time. Where did the idea come from? Well, oddly enough, given my grammatical analogy of a few moments ago, Darwin got the idea from a much older notion about evolution, which had to do with the evolution of language. And here's one of the few, perhaps the only, distinguished Joneses in, the intellectual, in intellectual history, um, a guy called Sir William Jones. And William Jones, an old Etonian, I'm sorry to say, was an 18th century um, uh, Londoner who discovered when he was a schoolboy that he had the most extraordinary facility with language. And like all Etonians then and now, of course, he could speak um, English, Latin, and Greek. Um, and he learned Hebrew. He learned several of the European languages. Um, and then when he was a young man, he moved to India. Um, and uh, he, he noticed that he began to learn Indian languages. And he noticed that certain Indian languages, too, had similarities to things like French, English, and indeed and indeed Latin, Greek and Latin. And he came up with the notion that perhaps they were related, that perhaps they had all emerged from a common root, perhaps, as we would say today, they had evolved, that language could change quickly over time, and if it were, they were in isolated places, they would change to such an extent that they would not be intelligible to each other. And of course that's true. We all know that language can evolve. I will now demonstrate an example of that, I hope. Is this going to work? No, it never bloody works, does it? Right. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister, Margaret Rose, and I feel so much for you, and we know from experience what it means to be away from those we love most of all. Um, that's the Queen speaking in 1941 at the height of the Blitz in a message to the children of Britain. And I think, uh, to many of us, that does sound rather old-fashioned, although it's a very charming um, little speech. Uh, let's now hear what two generations of um, evolutionary progress can do. This is her grandson, Prince uh, William. The Sioux is obviously something that's very close to my heart and I'm going to carry on with. And once I leave Sandhurst, then I'll be able to make the decision of whether I can do both at the same time or whether I need to think, hang on, army... Right, that's one thing that I'm going to do. It's important to do. It's something that I may have to say yes to for a bit and then stop. Hope. Oh. Um, it's a difficult one. What I should be doing, what I want to be doing. You know, it's it's hard. <laughs> <coughs> and people tell us that England's going downhill. Huh. But that's evolution. That's actually what's happened. In two generations, there's really been quite a striking shift in the English language. In another three or four generations, we won't understand a word he's saying. Um, and uh, you can hear it, I'm sure, not in Bath, of course, but certainly in London students, you can see the same effect. And this is what William Jones saw, that if you have a language copying, which is, passes from generation to generation, and it's imperfect, then languages will change. And he noticed in various of these languages that he could see the way it had changes. Changed, here are some numbers in English, Latin, Greek, and this northern Indian language now extinct, but with a very good written, uh, very good literature written down, you can see great similarities in the words for various numbers. And William Jones's um, breakthrough was to say, okay, if we can do this, maybe we can infer from the branches of these linguistic trees what the ancestral words might have been like. 
Now, in European languages, you can do that rather easily in some cases because, of course, the, the ancestral words are written down in things like Latin and Greek. Here's the word for father in the bottom line in a number of Romance languages, um, like Italian and Spanish, French, père, padre, and so on. And they clearly descend from the Latin pater, all right? Um, the uh, classical Greek, Sanskrit, and Gothic have some similarities to pater, but they're not the same. Uh, and what William Jones tried to do for the first time was to reconstruct the original word for father, which he thought sounded something a bit like pater. Um, and that's now been done enormously with large numbers of words from this um, ancestral language, which is called, now called Proto-Indo-European, or Pi for short. Um, and Proto-Indo-European, people now believe, was probably spoken in the Crimea some about eight to 10,000 years ago. And the people who spoke it moved east and west. And as they moved, there was imperfection in copying the language. Uh, they were isolated from each other, and the language is changed. And we can do a little bit more than what you can actually go to conferences now where people speak Pi to each other, and it all, it all sounds very peculiar. Um, if, you take, if you make the rather daring assumption that words change at a standard rate, and that is a daring assumption, you can actually begin to make, put some dates on the, when these languages began to split. For example, the German-English-Dutch group um, began to split from the French-Spanish-Brazilian-Portuguese uh, group about five and a half thousand years ago um, here. And the, my own native language, Welsh, um, split from that group 6,000 years ago, and then you have even older splits going back into history. And if you're a real optimist, and I think this goes a bit too far, you can make a linguistic tree of the entire world, which shows the supposed genealogy of different languages, as different as Chinese, Khoisan, which is the uh, Southern African languages, the Indo-European languages, um, and, uh, and, and, and uh, Pacific languages and the like. And if you really want to wave your hands in the air, you can get back to a, an ancient language maybe 60,000 years ago. Lots of people would argue with those dates, but you know, the notion of descent with modification, you can take back for a long, long time. Um, well, what Darwin did was to apply that idea to biology. And, uh, when I give my first year my first first-year lecture at UCL, uh, I always say to start off, I'm speaking from Darwin's bunker. And uh, they all look at me blankly. Um, and, of course, it, it, uh, if anybody's walked up and down Gower Street, that charming little uh, street in central London, uh, there's a blue plaque there which says Charles Darwin lived here, and the biology department lecture theatre is literally on the site of his coal hole. So I, I was literally speaking from his bunker, but now perhaps I'm doing it more metaphorically. But when he was in, the, in that house, which he called McCaw Cottage, because of the um, colour scheme, he drew perhaps the most important diagram in biology. And this is Darwin's sketch of 1837. He was actually beginning to study barnacles at the time. And one tends to forget that Darwin was overwhelmingly a serious scientist. Darwin worked for eight solid years on the biology of barnacles. And he did that, and he wrote four unbelievably boring books about it. I can't believe how boring they are, which are still the standard work on, bio on barnacles. He did that because he knew, in order to understand how life had emerged, he had to know one group in detail, and he chose barnacles. And he noticed that he could arrange them in hierarchies of decreasing similarity. Species B, C, and D look more similar to each other than any one of them did to species A. And what he did with this idle sketch was to begin to connect them together and then draw it back to number one, who he thought might have been their common ancestor, the Ur barnacle of long ago. And that really was using the linguistic um, argument um, quite precisely. 
Well, that's what, um, that's what the first part of the Darwin argument actually is. There's a second part of the Darwin argument, which is very secondary, actually. Uh, this, is just descent with, this is descent with modification, which is the core of it. But what Darwin realized, that what was descending, what was being copied, was itself a copying machine. So that any error in this copying machine, which by chance made it better at doing its job, at copying itself, would become more common. And that is the famous system known as natural selection. I often think of natural selection as a factory for making almost impossible things. Every one of us in this room is an almost impossible thing. The trees outside are almost impossible things. The bacteria are almost impossible things. But they've got there by standing on the corpses, almost literally, of billions of impossible things themselves who failed the test of natural selection and didn't pass on their genes. So natural selection is a mechanism for generating large amounts of order out of disorder. And you can, people often think it's, it's obscure and they come up with silly ideas like intelligent design because natural selection, they say, couldn't make something which is complicated without planning ahead. But that isn't true at all. And Perhaps the best example I know to illustrate the powers of natural selection come from factories, not uh, metaphorical factories, but real factories. When I left school a few years ago, um, uh, I, didn't, I decided not to go to university, and I started training as an engineer. And my first two years, I was uh, working in a soap factory, um, working on the, the big machinery that makes, um, that makes detergents. And the way you make detergents then and now um, is to get a giant vat full of some rather toxic chemical which boils away, uh, carefully formulated stuff, of course, uh, boils away under high pressure. Then you shoot this liquid, this boiling hot liquid, through a nozzle, um, and as it zooms out through that nozzle into a low pressure, lower pressure area, uh, it breaks, the liquid breaks into two phases, uh, one of which is a powder, which falls into your OMO or your DAS packets, and you go off and sell them, and the other one is a vapor which is blown away. Um, and the physics of that is extraordinarily difficult to understand. The phase, as you chemists in the audience will well know, uh, a phase change of that kind is really a very, very hard thing to model. When I was a, an aspiring engineer 40 years ago, um, this is what the nozzles more or less used to look like. Um, they were rather simple, and they did their job reasonably, but only reasonably well. Now, Unilever, who I worked for, was a highly research-led company, and they hired large numbers of physicists and mathematicians, including, as it happens, my father, um, to work on this problem of how to improve the uh, efficiency of their machines, this included. And they did some work. They changed the size of the hole and did some experiments and that kind of stuff, um, modeled it, but didn't really have all that much success. And then, after a few years, somebody had the bright idea, given that all these expensive physicists weren't doing the, a job, the job particularly well, why don't we get something cheap and nasty, i.e. a biology graduate, and see what they can come up with. And so the biologist um, came up with the notion of doing it by natural selection. And the way that was done was to take that, no that nozzle, which worked reasonably well, and to make ten copies, each of which was changed at random. Longer, shorter, broader, maybe some scratches on the inside, different angle of attack. Test those, and maybe one of them worked a tiny bit better. So take that, make ten copies, each of which are changed at random, replace the, repeat the process for about 20 generations. And if you do that, you get this, um, which is an almost impossible thing. It's a nozzle, which is ugly, uh, looks ineffective, but is about 100 times more efficient than what went before. 
And take it from me, no physicist could ever have designed that because the, uh, the, the physical process is going on in that nozzle. Nobody understands, but they evolved it. Natural selection did the job. It made something almost impossible, um, uh, which worked fantastically well. Even though we had to throw away 1,999 other versions, this is the one that actually emerged. So it works. There's nothing magical about it. That's what it's for. It's a machine for generating, um, it's for generating improbab um, um, improbability. So that's Darwin's machinery. What's the evidence for it? Well, it's clear that when Darwin himself was writing, he saw evolution as Galileo saw astronomy, as a historical science, that you would look into the rocks and find fossils, which of course you can do, or you would look at groups of creatures and you'd find they fell into groups subservient to groups, and you might look at islands and find that the island populations were a bit different from the nearby mainland populations, and all this reflected events that had happened in the past, probably the distant past. He had no notion that you might be able to see um, uh, evolution taking place around you. But of course, we all now know that evolution, natural selection, does take place all around us, and we can see it happening on many different scales. Well, I've only ever once really had uh, a successful argument, if you can call it that, um, with a creationist. And about 25, 30 years ago, I spent a year working in Botswana in southern Africa, um, which is a marvelous country. Um, you, I'm sure you've Many of you have read the Ma uh, Ramotse books, and it really is like that. It's got a really good education system, a really good health system. Uh, but it, one of the reasons it's um, such a stable place is that it has a very strong and well-organized um, Christian basis, basically on the, um, on the basis of uh, Scotch Presby Presbyterians who went out there and, uh, and acted as missionaries for many years and still have a large effect. And uh, as a result, there's a very strong creationist movement there. And I remember teaching a course in... in um, in evolution at the university. And at the end, asking one of the students, well, how do you reconcile what I've been telling you about humans having emerged on Earth perhaps 100, 150,000 years ago in modern form with your belief that it all happened in 4004 BC? Well, he looked me straight in the eye and he gave me the perfect answer. He said, it's very simple. Sa, you evolved, we were created. <laughs> which, is the, which is a perfect answer. But the sad part of that story so we're talking about 1970, when that student will have been about, it was probably 18 or 19. I'm almost certain that he's now dead. And the reason I'm almost certain he's now dead is that the world's capital of HIV, of AIDS, is Botswana. And it's had the most devastating effect upon that country. In the 1970s, the life expectancy of a baby born in the main hospital in Gaborone, in the capital, was about 71 years, which for Southern Africa is a completely spectacular result. Last year, it was 27 years, and the difference is entirely due to the passage of HIV, the virus, from mothers to their children as they're born. Now, they're attempting to overcome it, but it is a huge, huge problem. But from an evolutionist point of view, it's a huge opportunity, because we have with HIV the perfect example of the whole of the Darwin machine unfolding its powers in front of our eyes. Well, as most people know, HIV um, first emerged it was known to emerge in the West in about 1981 um, in California. It had almost certainly got into the West before then. The first European case that we know of, perhaps slightly, well, let's talk about the virus briefly. Um, the virus is an RNA virus. 
It's a small virus which has got genes of its own based not on DNA, but on RNA, as some viruses do. And what it does, as I'm sure you all know, um, it gets into human, it gets into the blood in one of various uh, different ways, and then enters cells by attaching itself to various receptors on the cell surface, inserts its own RNA, and then hijacks the cell's machinery to make lots and lots of copies of viral genetic information, which the cell then bursts, and the, uh, the virus spreads, and finally the um, immune system is overwhelmed and the patient dies. Um, the first case epidemic we know in, in, um, in, Britain, in Europe was in Sweden, and it actually shows Darwin's machine um, quite precisely. What we've got, it's, it's a tale of a man, we don't know his name, um, who had been to the island of Haiti in the Caribbean to work in the late 1970s. And he'd come back to Sweden in 1918, very soon fell ill with a then unknown illness. Um, he married in 1982, had several children, um, uh, divorced his wife and married again in, uh, in uh, 1986. I'm not sure whether it was a divorce or whether it was a second partner. Um, uh, and uh, as he did so, he infected both his, his, his partners and, his, and, their children, and their children were infected by what was then a new and unknown Illness, which is, of course, HIV. And very soon after it happened, of course, the Swedish authorities picked this up and followed in great detail what was the fate of the, each of these individuals. And their fate was not a very helpful, hopeful one because the lines stop when each individual dies. Well, you can see we've got a little family tree of infection. And what we can do... Uh, sorry, the thing has dropped off the bottom. Um, what we can do is, these are the dates from 1981 to whenever it was, about 20 years. And this vertical axis here is some tedious statistic that shows the accumulation of difference from viral samples taken from individuals infected at different dates over that period. And you can see, um, there's the base viral sample. And as years go on, as you take samples from individuals later down the infection chain, then they get more and more different from the original virus because of descent with modification. And if it was the case, as indeed happened, that other individuals um, were infected by virtue of contact with members of this um, little, uh, little group of, uh, of, uh, of infectious people, uh, even if you didn't know exactly when they'd been infected, if you could look at their viruses, you could look at the RNA, and you could put them, perhaps they might sit there, so they would have been infected down about, 19, um, about 1980 or so, 1990 or so. Okay? So that's descent with modification. And it's Impressive in this case because we have the both parts of the equation. We've got the family history written in medical records and we've got the genetic changes in the genes. But of course, in most cases, if you look, at, we don't have the family history written in the record, but we do have the information written in the viral genes. And what we can do, what's been widely done, is to make trees of similarity of the HIV virus based on various parts of its genome across the world. And if you do that... And this is a graph of one particular gene called GAG. I don't know what that means. I can't remember. Damn, it's gone. All right. Um, um, based on the RNA sequences from uh, various groups of viruses from across the world, they fall into distinct groups, some of which have a sort of ecology of their own. Some, for example, are more common among intravenous drug users. Some are passed on um, some from mothers to children. Some are among male homosexuals. So we've got sort of Darwin's Finch's phenomenon of, of, of ecological divergence. But we also have genetic divergence. And what you can do with the powers of modern computing is to, by using the order of the letters in the words of this uh, 
genome of this virus, you can infer what the ancestral virus, uh, from whom all these descend, must have been like. And, uh, uh, and you can draw a tree of relatedness, just like William Jones had done with the world father, um, which ties them all together. And if you really want to, you can actually make what's called a consensus sequence here, um, where you try and work out what was the, the original sequence must have been like, what was the ancestral one, and you make some predictions about what it might have been. Uh, you can date that because from 1980 to 2000, which is blown up here, 1980 to 2000, we have samples of the virus from all across the world, and you can see that uh, the, there's been a gradual change in the genetic structure of the virus um, uh, over that 20-year period. And if you want to be a real optimist, you can take your history back and suggest that maybe the virus got into at least the out-of-Africa world sometime between 1920 and 19, uh, 1950, let's say. But there's plenty of guesswork in that. Now, these kinds of um, arguments are widely used in molecular genetics. You try and make some guesses about the rate of change, population size, um, strength of selection, and you come up with figures of origin. But I will be the first to admit that they're not at all um, convincing, because they are tremendously assumption-led. And these trees, for example, one of my colleagues, Zihang Yang, who's a Chinese mathematician of frightening ability, has actually shown that many of these trees really are very, very woolly indeed, and you can't actually um, uh, be nearly as confident about what you're drawing as people once thought. I would think, so that kind of argument need not convince, perhaps, a determined creationist, so somebody doesn't believe in evolution. I always think that the real killer facts when it comes to proving evolution come from fossils. If you've got a well-dated fossil, which is clearly ancestral to two living creatures today, but is itself extinct, it's very hard for me to say, well, that's anything but evolution. It seems very hard to suggest that you could ever get a fossil of a virus, but in fact you can. Uh, four or five years ago now, an American biologist had the rather good idea of going back to Africa, where, as we'll see in a moment, we're certain that uh, the virus originated, and going to the hospital in, uh, in the Congo, where it seems most likely where a hospital in Congo, in Kinshasa, uh, where close to where the center of, the vi of viral infection um, then was, and going to the pathology department and looking at lots and lots of specimens in the old path lab. And their pathology lab, of course, what people do is they take tissue samples in an attempt to diagnose diseases, often with or without success, and quite often they keep them sort of randomly for long periods of time. Well, this guy spent a long time in this now rather chaotic operation looking back at uh, pathology samples for 40 or 50 years um, and not finding any evidence at all that anybody had died of HIV until finally one day he found one sample of an unknown African who had died of a then unknown disease in 1959 and lo and behold, in his bottled sample in the path lab there was the RNA virus. He sequenced that um, and he put it on that graph. And you can see there's the consensus sequence worked out theoretically, and there's the actual 1959 virus. Um, and if that isn't a really rather uh, impressive proof of dissent with modification, I don't know what is. Okay? So you know, HIV certainly gives us a strong evidence um, of, um, of the first part of Darwin's machine. What about the second part, the question of natural selection? Well, that's tied to the question, and I won't go into this in any detail, of where did the virus come from? It came almost certainly, like almost all other infectious diseases, it came from the animal world. Um, malaria, for example, one form of malaria, came from birds. 
Uh, smallpox came from cattle. We've all heard of SARS and the various Asian flus that come across that come from the duck-pig interaction in China and get into humans. Uh, many, many of our infectious diseases came from animals, and it's pretty clear that the same was true of HIV. Now, one of the reasons we know, believe that to be true is that if you look at chimpanzees and other primates, and indeed plenty of other mammals, they have viruses that resemble HIV of their own. And I don't want to boy, you're completely stupid, we have family trees. They're called SIVs, simian uh, immunodeficiency viruses. There's HIV-1, which is the common European, uh, common human form. There's a, there's a chimp virus, okay? There's a HIV-2, which is a rarer human form, is close to a virus in a monkey called a sooty mangabe, all right? Um, and there are various other complexities. But they ca it came originally from um, primates. One might ask why. Um, there's a picture I took in a butcher shop in Sierra Leone a few years ago. Um, I went to McDonald's instead, I have to say, um, which is a bushmeat shop. And, of course, what they're selling here uh, is, is bushmeat, which is butchered um, wild animals. And, of course, that's a perfectly reasonable and normal thing to do, which humans did, including our ancestors did, for 99% of their history. We were, we were hunters and gatherers and that we, had to, we killed and eat whatever, ate whatever foods were available. And if they're primates, so be it. Chimps do just the same, and we still do the same job. And it's pretty likely that the virus got in, and there's some guesswork here, um, to some hunter who was bitten or scratched while he was uh, hunting the animal and picked it up. But the interesting thing about chimpanzee viruses and the other ones is they're very similar in their RNA structure to our own, but they appear to be harmless. The chimpanzee gets it, and as far as we can tell, it might have a bit of a headache, but it can't tell you. Uh, as far as we can tell, it doesn't do any damage at all. It might be the equivalent of a, of a bad cold or a slight case of flu. In our case, it's absolutely lethal. So what's going on? What's actually going on is a marvelous example of natural selection. Not actually on the virus, but on ourselves. And this really, I think, is the best example we know of natural selection in action. It actually turns on the fact of the way in which the virus works. Let's remind ourselves that what it does is to get into the bloodstream in various ways, uh, by, through sex or by drug injection or by co contaminated blood in blood transfusions, um, gets in, and then it attaches itself to one of several attachment sites, chemokines and other things, um, on the cell surface. Now, as we all know, we... We are, as, a cre as an animal, as a, as a mammal, very variable. Everybody in this room varies uh, at about 3 million DNA sites in their genome from other people in the room. So there's a huge amount of diversity, some of which is familiar. We all know about ABO blood groups. I'm, um, I'm B, B plus, the story of my life. Blood group B, rhesus positive. Most of you guys are just, oh, no. Um, but uh, that's just one system of cell surface variation. There are lots of others. This is a thing called CD4, but there's another one, which, is, uh, I won't, uh, which I'll come back to in, another, in a moment, um, to which the virus also attaches itself. What it does is it comes in, attaches itself to this uh, receptor, and then with a certain amount of hand-waving, it injects its, uh, its, its RNA in. It's a bit like, I often think, the space shuttle going up to the space station. The space shuttle comes up, uh, it needs to attach itself to an attachment site on the space station, which clamps onto, and then the DNA of the astronauts gets through the, uh, gets through the tube. And it's just the same. Well, interestingly enough, many of these cell surface receptors, just like blood groups, come in different flavors. There are different ver versions in different people. And it transpires that some of them are absolutely crucial. Here's a 
uh, uh, particular receptor that's called CCL3L. And we needn't bother ourselves about its details. And just to simplify matters, I'll just look at this right-hand um, diagram uh, marked European-Americans. Uh, so, as you, I'm sure you know, there's a, often, there's always a delay after infection with the virus before uh, the symptoms of the disease begin to appear. And that's the time when the virus is multiplying itself and the immune system is fighting back with or without success. And it transpires that this CT3L comes in two different forms, one of which is called allele 1 and the other of which is called allele something else. Um, and what we've got here are the patterns of survival or the patterns of being AIDS-free uh, free of symptoms, which of course are closely related to patterns of survival, over 5, 10, and 15 years um, in European Americans with two copies of CCL3L1, um, one copy of that version and one copy of the other, and two copies of the alternative. And you can see, before treatment came in, which is when these things begin to flatten out, uh, you can see there was a dramatic effect on one's prospects of remaining age-free. Uh, if you've got two copies of the protective version, after 10 years, about half of all the people are still age-free. Um, if you've got no copies, after about seven or eight years, in fact, only about one in 10 is still age-free, and after 10 years, apart from treatment, everybody would be dead, okay? And this protective version is really quite common. About one person in six in, the Europe, in Europe has got at least one copy of that protective version. Now, so this is, of course, an example of natural selection in action. Uh, if you look in Africa, um, uh, I'm not, evolution isn't a particularly predictive science, but if I were to leap into the time machine, now being no doubt developed by the engineering department of the University of Bath, um, and to zoom off into the future for a thousand years, I would be pretty confident in saying that everybody around would have two copies of the protective version, and HIV might still be there, but it would no longer be a lethal disease. We would have responded by natural selection. Well, we don't have a time machine, um, in spite of all the efforts of the University of Bath, which will take us forwards, but of course we do have one that takes us back. And the one that takes us back is, again, comparative anatomy, looking at the genes of ourselves and our relatives, groups which have been exposed for differing lengths of time to this intrinsically African virus. And here's a diagram which is a bit mind-bending, but I'll talk you through it. What this diagram shows you is the... Um, this gene, by the way, is... Un no, it's not unusual. Like many genes, it can duplicate itself up. So you can have not just one copy of the gene locus, but you can have two, three, four, or six, or five or six or more, uh, each of which might have not one or two copies of the, of the um, protective uh, allele, the protective version. What we've got is the average number of copies of the protective gene allele in non-Africans in blue, in Africans in red, and in chimpanzees in green. And we can see that among non-Africans, who as far as we know, and it seems um, pretty clear, have not been exposed to HIV uh, for very long, the average number of protective uh, versions is three. In Africans, the average number of protective uh, genes is six, and indeed plenty of Africans have got seven, eight, nine, or ten copies of the protective version. And actually, if you look at them, it turns out uh, that many of those have got HIV but have shown no signs of it, and they are indeed somewhat of a public health problem because particularly in Zaire, um, many prostitutes, many, have many prostitutes have died, but many of the surviving prostitutes are these high copy number people who remain healthy but still infect their clients. And if we look at chimpanzees, um, which have 
uh, must have experienced the virus for very much longer, they've got nine or ten copies on the average. Okay? And for all of them, the virus is basically harmless. And that really is a diagrammatically clear example of natural selection. Only those individuals with many copies of the um, protective gene have survived. The gene has spread, and finally the virus has been defeated. So it's, uh, it's um, clearly a case of Darwin's mechanism. Let's go on now and talk about a bit more about ourselves and chimpanzees rather briefly. We all, as we all know, the chimpanzee genome has been, um, has been sequenced, and uh, we know quite a lot about it, and famously, we share about 98.5% of our DNA with chimpanzees. Now, that's less striking than it seems. I mean, if you look at particular gene families, there have been changes. There have been lots of indels, insertions and deletions, extra and removed bits of DNA uh, since the two lines split. One big gene family, which is the um, scent gene family, the taste and smell gene family, uh, we've lost many of our working um, taste and smell genes uh, compared to chimpanzees, so we smell even worse than they do, a cheap joke. Uh, but, in, but in general, uh, most chromosomes were very similar in DNA. Here's a diagram that shows the divergence, 1%, 1.5%, 2%, in each one of our 23 chromosome pairs between ourselves and chimps. And generally, really, it's about 1% or 2% divergence. Interestingly enough, on the X chromosome, there's been less divergence from chimpanzees than most. Uh, given, given that women have two Xs and men have only one, that means that women are more like chimps than men are, of course. Um, the Y chromosome, for reasons we don't really understand, there's been more divergence. That may be something to do with Darwin's sexual selection mechanism that all um, attributes associated with sex tend to evolve very quickly. But we're pretty damn similar. There's no question of that. Um, um, we can see how similar we are. And what I promise you, I think I promise you, is the last evolutionary tree I'm going to show you, which is this one here. And this actually, to me at least, and this is quite an old diagram now, um, brings together the scientific argument, which really just treats humans as another animal, which is, you know, that's what a lot of biology, of course, does, um, with the much more interesting social and uh, historical argument, which sees humans as being quite distinct. What we've got here is a family tree based on mitochondrial DNA of humans, chimps, gorillas, and orangutans, and it's just as every Darwinian would have predicted, humans sit slap-bang in the middle. There we are. We're close to all these other creatures. Uh, interestingly enough, there's some fossil Neanderthal DNA, which is surprisingly different. So probably the Neanderthals never interbred um, with humans. So that's it. I mean, that's we are. You know, Darwinian man, though well-behaved, is really but a monkey shaved. That was Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, and that proves it. But there's an interesting contrast between ourselves and all the rest. The length of each of these arms is, of course, a statement of how distinct in their DNA, the mitochondrial DNA, each individual sampled actually is. And what's absolutely striking about modern humans is that we're all the same. We're the most boring of all, all primates. And on this diagram, there are French people, people from Papua New Guinea, people from South America, people from China, um, and yet Really, there has been almost no biological change as we spread across the world. Compare that to chimpanzees. In fact, there's more difference between two groups of chimpanzees living maybe 100 miles apart in West Africa or East Africa than there are on the average between the population of France and the population of Papua New Guinea. We, in some senses, are the primate that did not evolve. Um, now, clearly, 
in any, any interesting sense, we've changed enormously. We are you know, far more abundant than the other primate. We're 10,000 times more common than we ought to be, in inverted commas, in terms of our body mass uh, compared to other primates. The world population shouldn't be 6 billion. It should be about the population of Bath. Not necessarily the same people, I have to say. But that's the natural world population. We should be a rare primate. We're enormously common, and we've hardly changed in our bodies. Well, why should that be? Well, it clearly, um, we have... Uh, we have a good fossil record I won't bore you with. Um, um, we have a good fossil record showing that certainly we have diverged from our joint ancestors with chimpanzees, um, and we've changed a lot. But in fact, we've changed recently in a way which has got nothing to do with DNA or fossils at all. And we can see that when we look at the fossil record, not of our bones, but of our artifacts. Here are some tools of Neanderthals. And Neanderthals were uh, a hominid species, quite like us, who lived in Western Europe for many tens of thousands of years and elsewhere um, around in Europe and the near Middle East for many tens of thousands of years, particularly during, the, during the cold, a colder period of the Earth's history. They were replaced on the, on the movement from Africa, modern humans, from about 120,000 years onwards. The, the um, Neanderthals made tools like this from the very beginning to the very end. They scarcely changed. Neanderthals were the last conservatives. I won't make the obvious joke. Um, when modern humans appear in the same caves, you see this, an enormous quantum jump in what they're able to do. Now, what's that due to? Is it due to some great change in the amount of gray matter modern humans have? I think the answer is no, because if you look at the size of the brain, um, and clearly modern humans up here have got much bigger brains, much more encephalized brains than our ancestors, like Australopithecus three and, and more million years ago. They get, the brains get bigger and bigger and bigger. But in fact, the modern human brain is slightly smaller than the, than the Neanderthal brain. But that only tells you that Neanderthals were big, beefy creatures. Uh, they were larger than we are. So if you take account for that, there was not much change in size. Uh, but the brain itself certainly hasn't got much bigger. So what has changed since um, modern humans first emerged? Well, what's, I think, changed, notable first of all is that almost nothing has changed. Physically, if you were to... Um, if you examine the fossils of early modern humans, they're physically almost identical to modern humans. I have the dubious honor, uh, privilege, of living in Camden Town in uh, central London. And if a Cro-Magnon man was to come and sit next to me on the tube, I probably wouldn't notice. Um, he might be covered in mud and grunting a bit, but this is Camden Town, right? Um, physically, he would be indistinguishable from the people around me. But take it from the point, his, point, his or her point of view, be completely baffling. Going underground at speed with people waving big leaves in front of their faces. What's going on here? Um, obviously, we've changed enormously, but we haven't done it physically. We've done it mentally. And many people argue, the evidence, I have to say, um, is not, is not uh, overwhelming, that it has to do with William Jones's favorite subject, the origin of language. Humans are often described as the eloquent ape. Even kids who are profoundly deaf um, and have no uh, contact with the world of sound babble with their hands. They try and contact each other by making sign languages, and sign languages will evolve. No other ape will do that. We are the eloquent ape, and we may, underline may, have some reason to have found some, one, at least one of the genes that might be involved. When I'm speaking... Um, 
at least I hope what's happening, is the left side of my cortex in Broca's area lights up. Very occasionally, children are born with a condition called verbal dyspraxia. It's very, very rare. And these kids are healthy, uh, seem intelligent on many tests, but are totally unable to deal with language. And if you do a brain scan, when they try and speak, they babble, and you can see that um, the, the, it's just dispersed all over um, their brain surface. Now, one story is, and for those of you who know about FOXP2, I know this is a grossly oversimplified um, story, is that actually this may have something to do with what made us human. If you look, the FOXP2 gene is all over the animal kingdom, including in birds, actually. Um, um, here we have an animal... Uh, the last, definitely the last um, uh, family tree. The two kinds of changes in FOXP2, some of which make no difference to the DNA sequence, and some of which cause changes in the structure of the protein and the amino acids. And it's immediately noticeable that there have been two shifts in the human line which breaks us away from chimpanzees. And that might then be what has made us human. Uh, we, have, we have a language and we can transmit information now, not just down the generations in the DNA, but down the generations with language and more important, horizontally from person to person. So maybe it was language that made us human. And clearly that's had a huge effect. Let's talk, for example, about HIV itself. Here's a uh, recent paper in Science which looks at the effect of uh, an education program in Manikaland, which is in southwest Zimbabwe, um, uh, during the AIDS epidemic. Uh, the number of sexual partners by men, let's say, in 1998 versus 2001 after the education program. And people in Zimbabwe are perfectly intelligent and educated, just need to be educated, um, many of them, of, of the dangers. And you can see that after... Uh, being discussion of the real dangers, the number of men with large numbers of sexual partners went down, and the numbers who were, uh, had no partners or, or at all went up. And that's had, that's had quite an effect on the, the epidemic. Among young people, the number infected in the early 1990s uh, has now dropped um, by, um, in almost every case. So the, it's had a huge effect. So in fact, we're now, we're now attacking HIV in a way that only we could do no chimp can go around and say, oh, you better not sleep with that chimp over there. It's got HIV, mate. Or well, if you do use a condom, I mean, that's not in chimp language, right? So that comes from our ability to transmit information in a new way. And, of course, we can, we can fossilize language by writing chemistry textbooks. And here, <laughs> the, yes, the, uh, here are some of the drugs which have been used, developed by chemists to treat HIV. And they can only do that, of course, on the basis of... Um, uh, you know, Mendeleev's periodic table and all the other information that we've developed over the years and have developed a modern chemistry that can make terrifying chemicals like this. Um, and that, too, depends on language. And it's very effective. Here's my last line. Um, the trends in annual age of, uh, rate of death due to HIV from 1987 to 2002 in the United States. These multidrug therapies came in in 1993. And you can see an enormous, an immediate, an enormous drop. Not, unfortunately, down to zero, because many people then became very foolish about taking precautions, uh, but a huge shift in, um, in our response to HIV, which, of course, is infinitely faster than the shift that would take place through Darwinian natural selection. So what does that tell us? Let me end up by going back to the beginning. What does all this tell us about ourselves as human beings? Well, it tells us something, I think, crucial which is that we have a number of unique 
attributes, one of which is language. A central one is language, there's no question. I think one of the most foolish pastimes that scientists have carried out in the 50 years is the endless attempts to, treat, to teach chimps to speak. Chimps can't speak. They might possibly say dirty potty, but that's about it. Um, and they cannot speak. I mean, uh, parrots can speak much better than chimps can. Interestingly enough, parrots, when they speak, um, uh, when, when they speak, they activate their FOXP2 gene, but that's another story. Um, so that's a unique response which humans have. And of course, many of the other things that make us human are also unique. Uh, remembering the past, as in the chemistry there, planning the future, as in the AIDS education program. Um, and in fact, as evolution is a comparative science, that's a huge, huge problem. Evolution is no good at dealing with things that are unique. It needs a standard of comparison. Okay? Uh, what it, well, we're not 98% chimpanzee at all. We're 100% human in all the things that matter about being a human being. I can illustrate the problem, maybe, with an analogy from language. Again, it's a joke my father told me many years ago, not realizing it was a joke about, um, about evolution. I was born and brought up until I was 12 in Aberystwyth in, West, in Welsh Wales, West Wales. And when I was young, it was very much a Welsh-speaking town. I went to a Welsh-speaking school. Um, and it still is a Welsh-speaking town, of course, uh, as you probably know, as long as there are English people in the room, needless to say. Um, otherwise, we just speak English to each other. Um, but the story goes that uh, somebody in Aberystwyth went into a Chinese restaurant and was served a very good Chinese meal by a clearly Chinese waiter who spoke perfect Welsh. So the customer was amazed by this, so he beckoned over the owner of the restaurant. I, I translate. He said, well, boy, where do you get this fellow from? Astonishing, a Chinaman who can speak perfect Welsh. Well, the owner looked alarmed and said, keep your voice down, Boyle. He thinks he's learned English. <laughs> and that actually illustrates my case. Because, of course, from a Chinese speaker's point of view, Welsh and English are only dialects of a language called European, which is quite right. French and English are slightly closer dialects, maybe, but we're all dialects of the same Indo-European um, uh, language. From, a, from a, an English speaker's point of view, the various languages in China, um, Cantonese and Mandarin and various other minor languages, all seem to be the same thing, but they're not. They're quite distinct. And the only reason we can see that, and the only reason in which William Jones could do his work was that he had all these languages scattered around which he could draw parallels and similarities between um, and could work out their evolution. Let's put ourselves 100 years or so into the future when there's only one language left. I don't think it'll be Welsh. Um, it might be English. It could quite possibly be Chinese. And let's make life easier by destroying all the fossils, burning all the books, or, or at least changing the formats of all your floppy disks so they can't read them anymore. So I've only got one language. William Jones would have been out of a job. There's no way that he or anybody else could understand where that language, let's say English, had come from, how old it was, where it had originated, how it had originated, the way the words fitted together, the structure of the grammar. We couldn't do anything without a standard of comparison. And everything that makes us human, of course, doesn't have a standard of comparison in the world. Um, everything that we're interested in uh, that makes us what we are, chimps don't have, mice don't have, bananas don't have, even though bananas may have 50% of our DNA. So I think really in the end, when you study evolution, the take-home message really is that actually Darwin's theory doesn't make you less human than what you were. It makes you much more so. Okay? I will stop there. Thank you.